So I just talking to All right, dear. Hello, I'm Nana. And if you enjoy listening to my sweethearts talk on this show, maybe tell a friend of yours. And maybe they can enjoy it, too. And if you would like to see this little show go a little bit further, maybe check out the Darlings Buy Me a Coffee account. All right. Okay, honey, you can go ahead with your flashlight thing now. Ladies, gentlemen, please take your seats. The spotlight is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. I'm Mystery Matt, and you're listening to the Mystery Matt Spotlight Podcast. Everybody laughs when I say that. <laughs> this evening, we are, of course, starting off Season 6 with another true crime story. And with true crime comes Sarah and Kelly. Sup, bitches? What up? We miss Kelly. Kelly never comes sees us no more. What? No mores. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that long ago that I saw you guys? Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Only like two months ago. Yeah, that's too long. <laughs> we miss Kelly when she's not here. Aw. Miss you guys too. Hashtag Kelly knows. Hashtag Kelly always knows. Yeah. So anyways, uh, yeah, I'm going to throw it over to the ladies because it, is it a big one? It's a two-parter. It's a two-parter, as yeah. they usually are, because if we go past that, then people I find get bored. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have like. We'll have a big four parter coming up for season 10. Yeah. Season 10. Yeah. Season 10, that's like four seasons away. I know, but it's not even close to being ready yet. (laughs) Oh, well then. All I can say is we've already started preparing for it because it's going to be, it's going to be a doozy. It's going to be big. And depending on what happens in the next couple weeks, I might be throwing Kelly through a loop. We might have. We may end up changing one of the people on the profile. Yeah, I'll explain after. May or may not. We don't know. Yeah, I want to talk to a relative of that person. Get closer to your microphone. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, so this time we are covering the Atlanta child murders. And I hate it when they we do the children, but apparently because they're such easy victims for these sickos that there's just more of them. So I'm going to have to bear with it, but. Yes, it's another child one. Um, this one I'm not going into a lot of details about how they're killed. I mean, thank you. Well, I'll, obviously, if I have a COD, I will say what it is, but I'm not going to say what the condition of the bodies are in or anything. Because a, we don't need that information. It doesn't help the story at all. Um, it's just icky. Yeah. So having the COD though kind of helps establish more of a what are you doing. Yeah, so the only reason why I will even mention COD is because it helps kind of establish what this person or persons responsible is connected to. Chug a lug. Huh? Chug a lug. Chug a lug. So the child. Oh, Kelly's throwing me off. Don't give it to. Isn't that mine? Yes, that one's yours. So the um, Atlanta child murders would also be the first time that criminal profiling from the FBI's behavioral science unit would be used on an active case as well as in the trial process. In 1979, Atlanta, Georgia was considered to, the, to be the metropolis of the South. 
They were just a little over a decade since the tragic assassination of civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King, which were still affecting the southern black communities. In 1978, Atlanta was considered the murder capital of the United States, with an astounding average of around 240 or more murders per year. Where was this? Atlanta? Atlanta, Georgia. And things were about to get worse for the African-American communities in Atlanta. On July 28, 1979, would begin a reign of fear on those communities and all they endured for the next 24 months. Along the Niski Lake Road in a wooden area, someone who was searching for aluminum cans stumbled across the remains of a small decomposing body. They immediately went to get the police and brought them back to where they found the small body. As the police began to search for the area for evidence, they discovered another small body. The bodies of Edward Smith, a 14-year-old African-American boy who went missing a week before, had been shot in the upper back, and Alfred Evans, age 13, also African-American, who had been missing for three days, died of a strangulation. At this time, police did not connect the two murders, despite the similar age, sex, race, and location of where the bodies were found. On September 4th, Milton Harvey, age 14, goes missing. And on October 21st, nine-year-old Yusef Bell goes missing while out running errands for his mother. When four young boys go missing in a span of four months, speculation among the community starts to begin. Thoughts were that someone was abducting children for the sake of strange religious ritual or worse. Classic satanic panic. Yeah, of the 80s, yeah, for sure. On March 4th, 1980, 12-year-old African-American female Angel Lanier goes missing on her way to the store. On March 8th, her body is found tied to a tree. Yeah. Personally, I don't think that one's connected, but... It's into this crime, like into this um, story, basically. But we'll talk about that more. The Atlanta Police Department still refuses to connect the murders together. Homicide detectives Danny Agan and Bob Buffington strongly felt that these cases were connected. But when Detective Buffington presented the theory that a serial killer may be in the area, he was threatened with a demotion down to traffic. Rumor continued in the communities. Rumors that the police were killing the children and the other was that the KKK were responsible. March 11th, 1980, Jeffrey Mathis, age 10, goes missing. On May 18th, Eric Middlebrooks left his foster father's home on his bicycle to run errands, but the 14-year-old didn't come home. The next day, his body would be found in an alley up against a dumpster. His bicycle with two flat tires and some nickel and dime scattered about the ground was not too far from him. The first big piece of evidence would hopefully be a break in the case. On the side of Eric's shoe were some carpet fibers stuck in the rubber. Um, there were injuries to his neck, three superficial stab wounds, but it would l- later be determined that his death was caused by blunt force trauma. Police would discover that this was very common for Eric and several other boys with bicycles would go out and run errands for their neighbors in order to make a few dollars. They'd go to the store, bring stuff back, and would get a tip. Sometimes those errands would run as late as 11 or midnight. On June 11th, it was a hot Atlanta day when 12-year-old Christopher Richardson and his two brothers were leaving from the local pool. Uh, His mother sent the brothers off to the pool but kept Christopher behind because for some reason he was wearing a dress shirt, but he begged his mother to let him go and she eventually did. His brothers came home later and their mother asked where was Christopher, but neither of them saw him. He never made it to the pool. On June 22nd, six-year-old Latanya Wilson is abducted from her bed in the very early morning. Now, at this point, 10 children are missing or dead within a span of 11 months. 
And the public safety commissioner, Lee Brown, publicly states that these crimes are not unusual and none of these abductions and murders are related. Venus Taylor, Willie Mae Mathis, Mathis, and Camille Bell, mothers of the three victims who were pissed off at having their children's murders overlooked, form a committee to help their children's causes and make it their mission to bring media attention by using the press to add pressure on law enforcement to solve their children's murders. It works. Okay, what is that? Is that you? I don't know. Nope. nope. There we go. <laughs> There's always hear, something there making honking. noise. Yeah. And car alarm goes off. Like, there's always something relative to, like, what's going on kind of thing. Like, it's messed up when we do these things. Okay. Sorry. On June 23rd. Oh, gosh. With these names. I know. I just call them Witchy. On June 23rd, Aaron Whitey, who was 10 years old, went missing. His body was found the next day beneath a railroad trestle. Aaron's cause of death was a combo of asphyxiation and a broken neck from a fall. It is questionable if Aaron's untimely death was even connected to the other 11 missing and murdered children. On July 16th, nine-year-old Anthony Carter was out playing hide-and-seek with friends and some of his cousins. Anthony's cousin, Jimmy Edwards, said that as the kids ran to hide, his cousin ran behind a building and, at the same time, Jimmy saw a man walking up the road and then just disappear. As kids were found one by one, Jimmy noticed Anthony was not there. He never returned. They searched for him, but no luck, and there was no sign of Anthony. The next day, about a mile away from where where Anthony went missing, his body was found on a grassy stretch behind a building. Eight months later, two of his friends would be found dead as well. Wow, all in the same friend group. That's brutal. Commissioner Lee Brown was feeling the pressure from the community, and rightly so. On July July 17th, Brown announced a task force is being formed to focus on the cases. July 30th, 11-year-old Earl Terrell goes missing. On August 20th, 13-year-old Clifford Jones goes missing, and his body is found the next day by a dumpster. His body was fully clothed but the shorts and sneakers were not his and his underpants were missing. Over 20 fibers were found on his body and taken to be examined at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation or GBI, where microfiber specialist Larry Peterson would examine the fibers and compare them to any other fibers collected in the other cases. The FBI would be asked to help them in the investigation, sending FBI special agents, John Douglas and Roy Hazelwood to use the technique that they were developing on criminal profiling to help create a profile of the suspect. By using information on the victims, what their lifestyle was like, their basic information, and what their normal day-to-day habits are, the evidence based on the crime scenes, medical examiner reports, geographical locations of where the victims were from, abducted, and recovered, in order to get a picture of the person or persons responsible. What they came up with was the following. Ambulance chaser. High awareness to the media. Unusual interest in police activity and even possibly monitors police radio. Relatively high intelligence. (coughs) Lack of sexual assault spoke to sexual inadequacy. A cool adult vibe mixed with authority. 
single, no girlfriend, has an interest in young boys. Male, between the ages of 25 to 29, would likely drive a police-style vehicle, would try to initiate himself into the investigation, owns a police-like dog, like a German Shepherd or a Doberman, likely lives with parents or older relatives, and African-American. Both Douglas and Hazelwood knew that they were going to be very unpopular with their profile, and it wouldn't be well-received. They both knew that they had a serial killer. Despite all the speculation that the KKK was involved, Douglas and Hazelwood knew otherwise. Clan-type hate crimes didn't fit the pattern of hiding bodies or not taking public credit for the murders. The clan would take credit, and they would display their kills in a way that is always symbolic and very public. They hide under those hoods for a reason. The word coward comes to mind. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. As expected, Douglas and Hazelwood would face fury over their profile. No one was willing to accept that there might be a black serial killer because all well-known serial murderers were white, which isn't the truth. Lorenzo Gilliard killed four, killed 13 women. There's also the zebra killers, just to name a few. As of 1995, 40% of serial killers were African-American. Another factor is that serial killers rarely cross racial lines. Both profilers stood by really? their analysis. Yes. I didn't know that. Very rarely. Yeah, it's a pretty well-known <laughs> and accepted fact that serial killers kill within their race. So it's white on white, black on yeah. black, Mexican on Mexican. Generally, yes. Yeah. Yeah, or they, huh. they pick a specific type, yeah. right? Yeah. Interesting. I guess that's probably going to be part of the season 10 one, eh? Oh, foreshadowing. Possibly, possibly. I mean, it's not, on, I mean, it's, it's the, there's the exception to the rule, obviously. Well, yeah, there always is for but any rule, right? Ma- like most of the time it's, they don't cross racial lines. Um, Roy Hazelwood was driven through the neighborhoods of the victims and he realized he was being watched very carefully by everyone. When he asked the police officers he was riding with why everyone was staring, they replied it was because he was white. It quickly became obvious to Hazelwood that a white stranger in these predominantly black neighborhoods would be unable to go unnoticed, thus solidifying his confidence in his and Douglas's profile. A, pe- a person sharing the same race as the majority of the community would not only come off as more trusting, but also blend in and move around unnoticed. He likely used a ruse or a con that would be enticing to the children in those neighborhoods. All the victims were young, outgoing, and streetwise looking to make honest money by helping their neighbors. Problem was, as streetwise as they were, there was also this naive naivety, naivety, naivety about them mixed with inexperienced. In order to help prove his theory, Hazelwood sent different police officers undercover in different neighborhoods using different ruses, all dressed neatly, either in a uniform or clean, nice clothes, asking for someone to run errands or help them cut a lawn, offering them five dollars to do some of these odd jobs. More of the African-American police officers had no problem enticing these young kids to help them out and were given a second look and were never given a second look by other community onlookers. The white police officers were turned down flat, eyed with suspicion, and even chased off away from the kids in in some instances. Sexual serial murderers target their own race and despite despite there not being an obvious and direct sexual aspect to these specific crimes, they still fit a sexual pattern even without sexual assault being committed. It is a release release of the tension which gives them the same feeling as sexual gratification. John Douglas didn't believe that Angel Lanier and Latonya Wilson's cases were connected to either or each other or the remaining cases. 
They were the only two female victims. One was abducted from her own bedroom and was likely someone she knew, and the other was in broad daylight, which did match the other cases, other than her gender and the way in which she was displayed publicly. I personally think as disturbing a thought as this is that Angel could have been a victim of the clan. I mean, she was tied to a tree. It was very public, you know, um, and of course of her race. What um, race were the children? All of these children were African American. Oh, really? Um, so, but I really hope that it wasn't the case. So, um, either way, it's freaking. It's disgusting, no yeah. matter which way you put it. Uh, September 14th, 10-year-old Daron Gloss joins the list of the missing children in Atlanta. On October 9th, Charles Stevens, just 12 years old, goes missing, but his body is found the next day in a mobile home park. There are at least four victims who were killed by strangulation or asphyxiation, three others by gunshot, stabbing, or blunt force trauma. The rest were undetermined. Latonya Wilson's remains were discovered in nearby woods by her home, but her COD could not be determined. November 1st, Aaron Jackson goes missing and found the next day on the banks of the South River by asphyxiation. No one from the communities of the missing and murdered children felt safe. They still had no suspects and have yet to admit that the cases were even connected. The media reported that children were going missing on average of every three and a half weeks. That would soon change. Isn't that usually like a, a standard kind of thing? They usually have like a cool down period before they offend again. Yeah, but there didn't seem to be a whole lot as like as we approach this next chunk that he seems to have ditched the cooling off period. We start seeing more rapid like children going missing and stuff. Not as like pieced out apart. Yeah, I, I think. They generally, when they're first getting started, is when you see, like, the larger gap. Like, I think he went a couple months at a time yeah. in between some of those in the beginning. And then it has something to do with what Sarah was talking about with the gratification that they get from it. They just want more, more, more. And they keep doing the same thing in order to get that gratification mm -hmm. constantly. And that satisfaction, they feel as well, runs out quicker. Um, also a lot of the times it's, it's kind of like smoking kind of a lot of the times too, because the fantasy is always better than the real thing. They're trying to obtain yeah. that, that same level that the fantasy gives them. Mm -hmm. So they keep doing it. And a lot of the times you see the spaces in between murders or rapes or whichever, um, starting off being more gapped is because they're trying to figure they can actually still relive the, that first one or the second yeah. one. And when that no longer does it for them, they they move on to the next victim. So as he's doing this and as he's slowly escalating his crime pattern, he's trying to now at the at the forefront of trying to perfect that. And he wants to perfect it and he wants to make that fantasy come alive better. So anyways, so moving on. November 6th, just six days after Aaron Jackson goes missing and is found dead, um, the FBI were officially asked to help. But because the FBI had zero jurisdiction in murder cases, they were assigned to help with the child abductions and to look at the cases of Alfred Evans, Milton Harvey, Edward Smith, Christopher Richardson, and unidentified remains. On November 10th, Patrick Rogers was a 15-year-old young man who loved to sing and perform in talent shows. His friends and his little brother Isaac, who was seven at the time, called him Pat-Man. Nice. Patrick told Isaac that he might have a chance to sing professionally and that he met someone who could help launch his music career. On the 10th, he would go missing, but the media didn't connect his disappearance to the others because of his age. 
and suggested he ran away. How old was he? He was 15. He was 15. Yeah. yeah, I think the oldest one you said before then was 13. Yeah, I think 13 or 14 around there. Um, December 7th, a fully clothed body is pulled from the Chattahoochee River near Ferry Road in Cobb County. It was Patrick Rogers. Isaac Rogers said in the Discovery Plus three-part series, The Atlanta Child Murders, that his brother had to have trusted this person and that Patrick had to have known the person to, to go with him. The medical examiner found evidence of injury behind his left ear and determined he died from blunt force trauma. Remember Isaac's names as it will be mentioned later on. Authorities were no closer to finding who was murdering Atlanta's children, so they issued a citywide curfew for children under the age of 15 and could not be on the streets between 11 p.m. and 9 a.m. At this point, panic sets in. On January 5th, 1981, Luby Jeter was a 14-year-old boy who often sold Zep products, mostly car deodorizers, outside of Big Star Food Store. This was a way for him to make money. Uh, some witnesses claim that they saw him get into a red pickup truck, and then it was a white pickup truck, and then it was a white and black cutlass. He was last seen outside of the store. So my problem, my main problem with eyewitness accounts is that you can never get a proper eyewitness account, no matter how hard you try. I mean, they'd have to be standing right next to the truck or the car, in order to get a proper eyewitness account. You have to count on people like paying attention to, yeah. to their surroundings. I'm like, they might have saw him just get into something from Mo- the corner of their eye. It, it could have mixed him up with somebody else. Yeah. 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 Most day-to-day information, like what color the cars are and everything on the streets as we're going through them, are completely erased from our memories. Oh, for sure. Because it's irrelevant information. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So, like, until someone goes, oh, has anybody seen this boy and they're like oh well i seen them get into a car well that's as far as you can go with that description because they weren't paying attention for that boy currently Mm -hmm. to be able to reference what color the car was right yep 100 on january 9th the police decide to research uh some of the body dump sites around atlanta while searching the area near Redwine Road and Desert Drive, they came across two bodies. One was Christopher Richardson. The other was Earl Terrell. Similar fibers were collected from the victims, which allowed GBI's Larry Peterson to compare them to the other samples. Based on the fibers, uniqueness, and rarity, Peterson was able to connect Christopher and Earl's cases to Clifford Jones and Eric Middlebrooks. But did they ever figure out what the fibers were from? Um, no, not yet. Usually, they can tell um, that kind I of think thing, right? If I remember correctly from the document or docu series that I watched on Discovery Plus, uh, Larry Peterson did know that the green fibers that were found on these bodies came from a carpet. Um, he wasn't quite sure where the other ones came from yet. He was hoping to have something to compare them to in order to um, solidify his findings. Around the same time, Patrick Rogers' little brother, Isaac, would have an encounter he would never forget. One evening, he was about to leave his apartment complex to run an errand for the neighbor, Miss Willie May, and on his way down the stairs, a man stepped out of the shadows, blocking Isaac's path. He describes a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach, and panic sets in. Isaac turned and ran back up the stairs and pounded on Miss Willie May's door, as the man followed him up the stairs. When she opened the door, Isaac said the killer was following him, 
and she held Isaac close to her as the man stood silent and very still on the top of the step about five feet away. Slowly he turned and walked down the stairs. Isaac described the man as being kind of short with an uneven afro, wearing rimless glasses, a tweed coat with patches on the elbows. Isaac says he will never forget the fear he felt, and to this day, he hates those jackets. Why would we include this story? You'll find out. It is important. On January 21st, 15-year-old Terry Pugh goes missing and is found two days later on the roadside. February 6th, 12-year-old Patrick Baltazar was visiting his father and stepmother from Louisiana and loved to swim with friends and his step-siblings. He also would do odd jobs for money. With all that was happening, Sheila Baltazar wanted Patrick to return to his mother in Louisiana where he would be safer, but that didn't happen. Patrick and a friend were at the Omni, which is a large hotel, with a mall, arcade, and various ballrooms, and were leaving the arcade when a man approached them in a car. The two ran away, but Patrick was convinced that the man was the killer that was terrorizing the community, and he wanted the reward money. So, he and his friend used a payphone to call the police task force number, and they told him to stay put, and they were sending someone out to him. The two boys waited for a while, but Patrick's friend decided to go home and left. No officer ever showed up. Patrick never made it home. Police later said they thought it was a prank call. Wow. Yep. That's bullcrap. Classic in these stories with police. Mm. Mm-hmm. Shit in the bed, shall I say? Well, they kind of shat in the bed the whole case. Yep. February 13th, Patrick Baltazar's body was found and the body of Jeffrey Mathis, who had been missing for 11 months. February 19th, Curtis Walker, just 15 years old, would go missing. The unsub has now accelerated his kills. The entire country was now aware of all the missing and murdered children in Atlanta. Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra would hold a benefit concert at the Omni in Atlanta, raising $150,000 to help the city pay for the investigation. Muhammad Ali pledged $400,000, and President Ronald Reagan pledged nearly $3 million in grants and federal emergency funds. The latest victims were a bit older in age, and the police surmised it was because of the curfew, which made it difficult for the UNSUP to abduct younger children, and now seemed to be targeting teenagers and young adults, some of which were considered challenged and unable to fight off an attacker. Two of Anthony Carter's friends would go missing next. On March 2nd, Joseph Jojo Bell would go missing, and March 11th, Timothy Hill would also go missing. In between Jojo and Timothy's disappearance, the body of Curtis Walker would be discovered in the South River near the Waldrop Road Bridge. It's around this time that the media reported the investigation had linked up the fibers and dog hair evidence to some of the different cases. This news would lead the unsub to change up the way he disposed of the bodies, which is why Curtis Walker was now found in the South River. On March 20th, 21-year-old Eddie Duncan would go missing. March 30th, Timothy Hill's body was found in the Chattahoochee River near Fairburn Road, and 20-year-old Larry Rogers would go missing on the same day. On March 31st, Eddie Duncan's body is found just a little downstream where Timothy Hill's body was discovered. On March 1st, 23-year-old Michael McIntosh goes missing. On April 9th, Larry Rogers is found dead in a kitchen apartment strangled to death. On April 12th, the body of John Porter, age 28, was found with multiple stab wounds, but no idea as to when he went missing. 
On April 19th, the body of Jojo Bell is found in the South River near Klondike Road. On April 20th, the body of Michael McIntosh is discovered in the Chattahoochee near Fairburn Road. On April 22nd, 21-year-old Jimmy Payne goes missing, and his body is found five days later on the 27th in the Chattahoochee at Bankhead Highway. The police and FBI know for sure that the unsub was indeed paying very close attention to the media coverage of his crimes and starting to dispose of his victims in rivers, usually wearing nothing but their underpants, to wash away any potential evidence. He was getting very cocky. The FBI decided that staking out the rivers and bridges in order to hopefully catch their unsub. With the timetable of 30 days... They came up with the plan along with the task force, Atlanta Police Department, and training officers from the academy to set up two-person teams under the bridge on each side of the river and two officer, two others in a secluded area above the bridge and have chase cars ready, all hidden away, and if anyone sees or hears anything, they'd radio the chase car. On May 11th, 17-year-old William Barrett would go missing and his body was found the next day along Winthrop Road near the I-20. May 21st, 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater was last seen leaving work by a co-worker. May 23rd, at 2.55 a.m. This was the last night of the stakeout. Higher-ups had decided to pull the plug. An officer who was under the James Jackson Parkway Bridge Here's a splash in the Chattahoochee River. Police recruit Bob Campbell was very familiar with the sound of a human body hitting the water as he was on the high school swim team. Campbell radios up to the car and checks to see if there's a car on the bridge, and the chase car confirms that there is. Police begin to tail the white station wagon for a few miles, and it turned around and crossed back over the bridge and then was pulled over. FBI agent... Mike McCormis arrives at the scene to see police officers talking to a short black man wearing a baseball cap over his afro and glasses. McCormis walked over and found out the man's name, Wayne Bertram Williams, age 23. McCormis asks Wayne if he knew why he was pulled over, and he immediately says, yeah, it's about the murder of those children, isn't it? They ask if he would consent to a search of his car, and he granted them permission. On the front seat, they found a pair of suede gloves with a wool liner and a flashlight. They weren't overly concerned with those, but they found in the back seat, or they looked in the back seat and found a white nylon braided rope. As the FBI chatted with Williams, He was very calm and didn't give off any indication that he felt intimidated. Williams told investigators that he was a talent scout and that he had a meeting between 9 to 10 in the morning with two sisters, one named Cheryl Johnson, and they lived in the Spanish Trace Apartments and was out trying to find the address so he wouldn't be late in the morning. The FBI allowed him to leave, but no one thought to collect the rope that they had found in the car. A couple of days later, after police and FBI stopped Wayne Williams on the bridge, Nathaniel Cater's body was found just slightly downstream from where Bob Campbell heard the splash in the Chattahoochee. Fibers were recovered from the body. Law enforcement immediately put Wayne Williams under surveillance and made sure he knew it. If he was the man responsible, they didn't want to give him a chance to kill again. Questions? 
Why didn't like? Did they not have enough right then to detain him? No, no. Um, you have to have probable cause, and basically they had just him on the bridge with a couple of sketchy things in his car. So there wasn't quite enough. So by putting him under surveillance, he couldn't do it again. He couldn't do anything, like kill somebody else. And oddly enough, I, I believe I, the murder stopped as soon as they put him under surveillance. So. Interesting. Yeah. But I mean, there's, um, when we get into part two, part two is mostly about Wayne and the um, um, evidence collected and some of the, to- like, some of the um, personality traits he has that are. Um, interesting to say the least. So I don't know what our time is at now. 32 minutes. Oh, wow. We're actually doing pretty good. Are you done part one? Yeah. Part one's done. Okay. Well, it can be a shorter episode. It is a lot to absorb. That's why I don't mind if these ones come a little bit shorter because we are making a two-parter, which will let us like we're at 33 minutes, right? Yeah. We'll talk for a minute here. Um, but it's a lot to take in, especially for someone like myself who I I don't indulge in watching any of these cases or yeah. learning about someone's psyche to try and figure out why they would do this kind of thing. Um, I know there's evil in the world. I know there's lots of it, but I don't care to be shown it. You know, like I, I don't care to look into it's it. It's not that we want to <clears throat> like, we're not showcasing these cases. Well, some of the cases, I guess that we choose. Um, some of them we do because they're interesting and some of them we do because I think there's unfinished business or there is definitely unfinished business. Um, we try to even it out a little bit because we did JonBenet, which was unfinished and still very much is. Um, then we did the Homolka Bernardo, which is finished. And then we did Delphi, which is unfinished and still unfinished, but <laughs> getting close, getting <laughs> close to being finished. And then I, what did we do after Delphi? Iceman? Yeah. Which is finished. And now this one, which to me has some unfinished business. So whether or not our next case is going to be one that's completely finished or another unfinished business, it depends on what we choose to do next. But um, I prefer focusing on cases that don't have an ending because we want to help them find that ending. Yeah. Even if we only reach 10 people or 10,000 people, whatever, right? It's Yeah. As long as we're getting the word out there and as long as we're doing the research. And the other thing is like the cases that are unfinished generally don't have as much attention on them. Right. So no matter how many people we're reaching, Mm -hmm. it's more than, yeah, than it was before people listened to this episode. Like um, Kelsey, Kelsey German, um, Libby German's sister from Delphi has even said that she would travel to like, the next day and talk to somebody about her sister's case and they'd be like oh i never heard of this case and delphi is a pretty well-known case but it just goes to show that not all true crime cases have a reach and by spreading that word even if it's by one person it's still another person who now knows about it in atlanta child murders happened so long ago and with all the te- advances in technology there should be no reason why we can't verify more of these cases and we'll get into that obviously in part two i don't want to go too far in depth about that so i think there's something too with people being interested in um the gory aspect so people are more interested in like we said the cases that are solved but also the ones that 
have the gory details because it's just it's like flabbergasting to see that somebody would behave in such a way yeah be capable of it right like whereas i know people are easily capable of it it happens every minute of every day all over this planet i don't care to indulge in watching that kind of stuff because i actually feel it hurts my soul Mm. you know what i mean like i feel like now i've dedicated this kind of part of my thinking to worrying about all the people who have been harmed by these sick freaks. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if I lived my life that way, I'd, I'd be, I'd be a mess, right? Like, so I, I just don't, I just don't. Like I had never heard of the Delphi case before we talked about it. Um, before we were looking into it. I'm glad and, we were able to put out what we could for that. one. Yeah. Thank you yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's been really interesting to be able to put that out and then see things happen in real time. That's been really interesting. But there is like this sick fascination with like hearing about disgusting things that people do, right? Yeah. Like like it, the Delphi case, you don't really have that much information. I like, don't want that information. Honestly, I don't either. But you, you don't have it, right? Like two girls went missing. And they were brutally killed. And they were brutally killed. But we don't have the disgusting nitty-gritty let's say like compared to jeffrey dahmer right i find that though when you're looking at and and in the sense that you're trying to spread the word about a case and trying to find the unsub or the person responsible however you want to put it having the details of their autopsy is not going to help you find that person you know and i don't see the need of knowing that and one of the biggest things that i learned doing some research was on the john benet case I'm looking just for the autopsy report. I didn't want to find anything else. I didn't expect to find anything else. And then I found autopsy pictures. And I was like, oh, my God, it destroyed me. I had to actually step away for like a week from doing research on that case because I was completely traumatized. And at the time, our daughter was the same age. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. I'm like, no, like, holy shit. No, like, that's too much. And Too close to home. It was too close to home. And it, and it still hurts my soul to know that. Like how many years later now that girl's still un, like unsolved, and her dad and her brother, half brother, are out there fighting for her, but nobody seems to be listening, other than oh, unless they want to listen, and only time you want to listen is if there's controversy. Now the other thing that pisses me off is that you can tell that with all these children missing because they are the uh, black, the race that yeah, yeah, because they are black, um, the police are kind of not giving a shit oh yeah 100 percent. like yeah more so back then but even still now yeah people a lot don't of them play, were, a don't, lot people of them... don't pay attention to black people dying being murdered they yeah. just blame it on the community that they live in that white people force them into oh i'm gonna go off on a tangent oh but, yeah oh <laughs> like, well let's not you know but like it's, that makes me sick too it is it's disgusting <laughs> like what what was i don't even remember her name now but that that girl that um was missing and then we found that she was murdered but she was a blonde girl oh here holly? yeah was it holly? holly no no not here not oh. in the one that was in the states but it just happened like in the summer and it got all this oh, publicity gabby yeah gabby petito but then there was daniel mm-hmm. and dan i would like to actually cover daniel's case um daniel was a black Young black man who yeah. went missing just before that. Yeah. Got some coverage. As soon as the white girl in the van who's doing her Instagram shit goes missing. And I'm sorry. I shouldn't be saying that because she deserves it too. But he nobody talked about Daniel anymore. 
No, she hundred percent deserves attention, but so does everybody else. Everybody else that's not a pretty young blonde woman that goes missing, because there's a lot more of them that go unnoticed, and not just race. It also comes down to people like class, sex workers especially. Nobody cares about sex workers. Nobody cares about people that are involved with drugs because they're looked at as bad people. Whereas like people who are innocent, like the case we're covering. It gets a little bit more attention because they're innocent there's children, so ma- and there's so many, and there's so many. Yes, yeah. we have thir- but, we have thirty victims here that we talked about. But if these thirty, for example, if these were white kids that were going oh, missing, it, it wouldn't have hit the numbers. Everywhere. It wouldn't have hit those no. numbers. And the thing is, is that John Douglas talks extensively about this case, and he takes it very personally because he does care. And he doesn't care that they're black kids or white kids. He cares the fact that there's children being murdered at a rate like this, 30 in like two years. That's ridiculous. And he wants this case solved, but sometimes you get pushback. And yeah, he might have pissed some people off by saying that the person they're looking for is a black man. I get that. You don't want it to be somebody of your own race. You never want it to be. You don't even want it to be your husband. You don't want it to be your uncle. You don't want it to be your neighbor down the street. You don't want it to be a teacher. You don't want it to be somebody of your own race. I get that. But unfortunately, shit happens. And there are bad people in every form. Right? Yeah. So. So we're at 40 minutes. That's good. Yeah. The next next one's going to be a little bit harder. Yeah. More discussion. (laughs) Stay tuned where next week we go to part two of this crazy madness. And people don't hate, love each other. Listen, take some time to look into all the things we discussed today. Yeah. The people that are less than, quote unquote, less than, that go missing, that get murdered, that get killed. Like, in the Appalachian area, there's so many people that go missing because drugs are such a huge problem there. And nobody cares because they're seen as bad people. So, take the time yeah. Pay attention to the people that are considered less than because they're people too. They're important. It doesn't matter what your class is, what your race is, yeah. what addictions you may or may not have. Yeah. It doesn't matter. P- missing people are missing people and they all deserve our attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyways, we'll see you next week, guys. Take her easy. <laughs>